Welcome to Accelerate OC, the only show focused on the people leading innovation in Orange County. Join our host, Carrie Ransom, and his conversations with the trendsetters, entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders here, because it's time to Accelerate OC. Good morning. Welcome to Accelerate OC. I'm Carrie Ransom. And thanks always to our engineer, Paul, for making me and my guests always sound so good. Uh, we are broadcasting live this morning, also on Zoom, and unfortunately not all together, but this has become our new normal, but hopefully uh, for not too much longer. Today's episode is sponsored by OC4 Venture Studio, where I am sitting uh, here today. And it's a new tech startup company building platform and community that we're building here in Orange County. So if you're looking for help with your startup or you're looking for opportunities to work with the next generation of high growth companies or you want to be part of the Orange County startup community, you can visit us at OC4V.com to learn more. We'd love to hear from you. I'm excited to have my friend Carson Laptito here on Accelerate OC this morning and very, very timely for him joining us as well. Um, Before we get to hear from him, and his work as president of a uh, local Orange County bank, which is all the rage these days to be uh, finding your local banker to talk to. Let me tell you a little bit about Carson. So he's currently the president of SunWest, which is our SunWest Bank, which is an OC-based business bank. And I believe it is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Uh, And so uh, we can talk a little bit about that. But it was started 50 years ago, really by a group of entrepreneurs, four entrepreneurs, four other uh, small businesses here in the community. And they've been super active in Orange County, working with businesses that range from startup businesses like many I've been involved with, all the way to multinational corporations. Uh, he's also really innovative. Part of why we've uh, become friends, I think, is he's very innovative in how he thinks about the banking industry and particularly technology in it. And he even was one of the first to roll out an online application for this recent Paycheck Protection Program, or as everybody now is affectionately calling it, PPP. Uh, And he was really ahead of almost every other bank in the country. We started talking about this almost the moment that it was announced because he had most of what he already needed to do it built. And so we can can talk about that uh, as well and how the bank has really responded to this current crisis in the small business community with regard to uh, funds and liquidity and um, trying to roll out this SBA program. So Carson's a banker, as I mentioned, but he's also an entrepreneur. And I laugh because often those two things almost run counter to each other. Uh, I think most people that know people in the banking industry look at them as somewhat the antithesis of entrepreneurs, but I really can vouch that he is one. And he's worked in a number of different roles throughout several financial institutions. And uh, like me, he's a transplant to Orange County. And he also uh, showed up here with his economics degree, like I did. But uh, so we're kindred spirits in that regard, but he's way smarter. He also uh, got a degree in political science and even a minor in Mandarin. Carson, it's great to have you on Accelerate OC this morning. Gary, thanks for the, the kind comments. It's great to be here. Looking forward to the show. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's get to the starting line and obviously the pressing news of today with regard to businesses and the banking system. So how are you guys? Let's start first with just how are you as a business and as a bank navigating uh, COVID-19 yourself? So we have the fortunate 
um, benefit of having a pretty diverse board of directors. And, and one of one of the members of the board of directors, his family's from Wuhan. And so in February, you know, we'd been tracking this since December, but really in February at our board meeting, we had a pretty significant discussion on what was going on in China, how it was going to evolve. And, and as a result, we were ahead of the game here. Um, and thanks to, you know, my wonderful team at the bank, they had our pandemic plan up and running in the third week of February. And um, we were navigating this day by day, uh, you know, up until obviously the the uh, state of emergency, and then the stay-at-home order from Gavin Newsom, and, and that really escalated us further uh, into this, you know, pandemic plan. As banks were an essential business, uh, yep. I'd argue we're even more essential than the grocery store uh, because you need your money to transact on on pretty much your day-to-day, mm-hmm. which means we we knew we had to be up and running with every facet of our business. We have a very large transaction processing business that. That thanks a large, a lot of uh, significant companies throughout the country, and uh, as a result, you know the checks have to get processed by our lockbox. Uh, they have to run our ACH transactions, and so in addition to that, you know we needed our branches operating to, for the local community. So we put social distancing processes in place for our branches, but we didn't close lobbies like a lot of banks did. We we wanted to make sure that our clients still felt like they could come into the bank whenever they wanted, and get their money if they needed to, and that's an important level of confidence that that our country and our clients have to have in a moment of crisis like we're in sure great great uh great thoughts yeah so let's talk about the programs right i mean people in in a lot of your client businesses are challenged when we were talking off the air very few businesses in fact none that i've ever met have modeled for a scenario where they are losing 80 percent or 100 percent of their business overnight um, so obviously this stimulus that was passed was designed to try to help people just navigate through these uncharted waters. How, how are you guys responding to that for your clients? Uh, I mentioned the, the PPP as, as one example. Sure. So, you know, my heart goes out to entrepreneurs, both my clients as well as friends and entrepreneurs I don't know across this country. You put your blood, sweat, and tears into building a business and then you wake up the next day and you can't open and you have your whole payroll and all these people that you're loyal to that you've been, you know, keeping, keeping their families moving for decades in some cases or years. And then all of a sudden to wake up and have to stare at how do I pay these people when I have zero revenue coming into my business? And, and, you know, I've, I've had phone calls with all of these folks and the, the painful decisions they're having mm-hmm. to make is, is just, I, I can't fathom it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that the government stepped up and put a program in place to keep, keep people employed. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when you think about all the ways the government generates stimulus to roll out, it was a very thoughtful program that was rolled out. And, you know, look, all big programs that are rolled out quickly have their flaws. But to, to have a program that keeps people employed for this interim period of time so that all those businesses are up and running you know, the day we decide that we're going to open the country back up uh, and they can begin servicing just like they were a month ago. Um, you know, that's really important. If we did, don't do this and don't get this money out the door, you know, we're not talking about 10 million unemployed. We're talking about 30 million plus unemployed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those numbers, you just don't come back from as much as you wish that was, you would have this C-shaped recovery, which we'll talk about later. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the PPP program is, is, 
it's well thought out in the district, you know, in my opinion, and the distribution network was well chosen. You have to run it through the bank Mm -hmm. uh, because they're the only, they're the only mechanism that has, you know, one is entrepreneur, you know, you're, you're a business, right? So you're entrepreneurial, you can build your own processes the way you want them. But in addition to that, you know, the same, there's problems with the disaster relief program, which we were talking about off the air, Mm -hmm. where the SBA actually processes those applications and they aren't staffed to deal with the volume, right? That program's designed for a hurricane in one area or, or flooding or a tornado sure. in the Midwest, you know, for one regional pocket. They're getting applications from all over the country at once. They just can't handle it where the banks are, are well positioned to do it. But there's a whole slew of, of issues that are, are getting vetted through in the, you know, last week and it will happen. And as we're ongoing this week, and so, you know, I'll close with saying one of the reasons why we were in front of everyone on this or almost everyone on this is that, you know, my, we had a pandemic plan up and running. We were ahead of the game in terms of how we get this company structured because of the amazing team I have. And as a result, we were a week and a half ago less worried about how do we run our business because we had already stabilized from that uh-huh. standpoint. And we were sitting there saying, how do we go and serve our communities because that's the most important thing right now. Sure. Yeah. And I think the couple of things on that, I mean, one is when I heard about this program, I mean, the, the entrepreneur in me said, Hey, I've been in the FinTech world. I mean, you know, my last two startups have been digital financial transaction, you know, one lending, one banking. I, I get this world and said, Hey, the government's going to need help to do this. And other than you, I don't know many banks that are equipped to actually roll out a scalable online solution for something like this. So I'm sitting there thinking, hey, maybe there's an opportunity for a new entity to emerge. So even as you're thinking about it, this is somewhat a time to shine and to show customers or even prospective customers Hey, we, we, we understand the future of technology. So how, how has it been from uh, the, the standpoint of talking to businesses? Because the timeliness of even getting these processed and getting money to people is critical because they needed it two weeks ago or a month ago, not two weeks from now. And I think one of the big things getting exposed is that a lot of companies particularly your local small businesses don't have months of runway to navigate this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So as a, you know, company, as you mentioned, we, we, we had a lot of the infrastructure being built to move uh, to a more digital process uh, in a lot of different channels of our business. And and a lot of it was up and running, but we weren't putting a lot of throughput through it because, you know, we're a, we're a high touch white glove business bank in our communities throughout the Western U S you know, we don't drive volume and, and, but I was trying to until now. Yeah. Until now, until, you know, we, we've, we had more applications yesterday than we, than we had as new clients all of last year just to put it in perspective. Okay. So, so, so going back to your question about, about, you know, the, the, the program and how to get money in the business's hands. I mean, the, the problem that you're, you're in the midst of is, is one uh, bank's, universally have come out and said, we're only going to take care of our existing clients. And if you read the press releases from the big banks, and I feel for Wells because they're in a tough spot, 
if you read the press releases from the big banks, they're really only taking care of their existing lending clients. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when there's every, every business needs this assistance, it's not just the businesses that borrowed from the banks and now need assistance in paying their loans back to those same banks. So, so there's, you know, there's a lot of different incentives across the board as there is with everything. And that's why we came out here and said, look, we're going to do it for our existing clients and new prospects to the bank because everyone needs help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want to build relationships with those that we're helping because that's, you know, look, we're, we're there in their moment of need. And, and that's how you build long-term clients um, in all businesses. And so that's, that's the strategy we've, we've taken. So let's let's uh, take that. You know, obviously, potential there for you to really establish um, yourself with new potential clients. How do you think about that, though, from a viability when it is pretty unclear what demand is going to look like on the other side? I mean, you know, as you're forecasting the Orange County or the the economy for your clients, let's say, which is I think mostly centrally here but they a lot of them operate in places far beyond orange county how are you forecasting the economy for not even i wouldn't even say q2 because i think most of us know that's going to be horrific but call it the second half of of this year and i mean as a bank that is a critical function in trying to forecast what what uh capital ratios and things are going to be for your clients given Really, and I think demand seems to be one of the big big things that's uncertain, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. So so one of the things that is different about SunWest is is we're an uber-conservative company. Uh, so we're privately held, uh, very closely privately held, uh, and we operate with excess capital, uh, excess twice the reserves of the industry, mm-hmm. and we're very conservative underwriters. Um, so our clients have excess liquidity and have can carry their assets for an extremely long period of time. And that's why we've been here year in and year out. And, and, you know, we're, we're, we've become a regional bank over the last 12 years because in 2009, we didn't, you know, in 2006, five, six, we didn't make the mistakes other banks made. And then we bought five failed banks in four years and, and expanded throughout the Western U S. And, and so, you know, we go into this uh, much better positioned than, I think a lot of our competitors, which is why we can be more on the offensive than, than they would be with this, you know, helping the community with the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm extremely concerned about what the, the future looks like for the economy. I think, I think it's unreasonable to believe that everything will go back to normal when we come out, when we all of a sudden open up. I, I think when you look at why recessions occur, right? Recessions occur because uh, some part of the economy stops spending, stops investing in their business, and then there's a there's a a wave that moves through the entire economy. And and recessions significantly happen in the U.S. when the consumer contracts because U.S. GDP is driven 75 percent by consumer spend, and the rest is largely by by business investment. So when you're when you're thinking about the fact that you had, you know, we had we had six plus million unemployed filings last week, right? Unfathomable. The the highest ever before that was Mm 700,000. Before the week before that, you had 3 million, right? So the numbers you're talking about are astronomical. You, you, and you're not even taking into account that 
April 1 was the next payroll sector. So if, you know, you have eight more days till the next next uh, set of payroll and you're going to have a lot of cuts that are that have already happened and are going to happen between now and then. So you're looking at a very high unemployment number. You know, Mnuchin said 20 percent. You're probably going to get there. And no one's ever paused the economy before. So the repercussions of what unfolds in the next month, two months, three months, you, you can't even predict because there's no data point for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you the, the things I'm seeing, right? Uh, you know, all the businesses who can't operate and have had revenue drop by 30, 50, 70%, you know, they, they're, they've obviously not paid their rent. Mm-hmm. Um, some have paid for April, but most aren't, or they're paying some portion of it. Um, they're renegotiating all their contracts right across the board. So you're at the very beginning of a ripple through of revenue through the entire economy. And I don't think it's going to come right back. So you're, you know, you're staring at a bad recession at best, I think. Uh, and, you know, it could be worse. Well, and, and I think the, the one other big thing that starts to really highlight that is starting to get talked about a little bit, but, you know, we've seen just this massive explosion in the gig economy in the last several years and a lot of people that have a different type of classification. And so it just seems like a lot of our government statistics and measurements are still rooted in this uh, manufacturing industrial era of Mm -hmm. 50 years ago when the bank was starting. And we, we have to figure out how to have, in my opinion, have to figure out how to have the systems and the measurement to really understand what is the true economic reality of these various different types of people. In some cases, they're probably healthier than we think. And in other cases, far, far less because um, the old uh, hourly wage, you know, everyone had a, a pretty similar economic reality. I mean, two generations ago, 50 years ago, cost of living was pretty stable in most parts of the country and pretty similar. And now it's wildly different if you're where we are here in coastal California versus somewhere else uh, in a small town in the middle of the country, like where I I came from. And so I just think there's so many differences that aren't fully reflected that um, we have to figure out some better ways to handle. So any any thoughts on that? I mean, that's sort of my segue to starting to think more about financial technology beyond just faster transactions, but it just seems like we don't have a, a well understood picture of our economy. Like you said, I mean, we, we aren't, we certainly have no precedent for just completely pausing it and seeing demand for things like gasoline drop by 50% or see demand for travel drop by 90%. I mean, September 11th, we had a little bit of that for a short period, but it's, it's, it is unprecedented. So it's really hard to, to figure out uh, where we go from here because a lot of things people believe weren't structurally broken before this. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's, um, look, government statistics have, have been lagging for quite some time. I mean, GDP is a very bad predictor of growth. Um, and, and you're absolutely right on, on how, you, how you report employment. Uh, and, you know, look at Uber and Lyft drivers. I mean, Uber and Lyft drivers are great examples of the fact that 
there's just no volume going on. Um, and candidly, there's probably going to be limited volume in ride sharing when you come out of this because people are going to be concerned. We, we've created so much fear in our society that people are just going to be more hesitant in terms of their transit choices. And, um, you know, and I think, look, after September 11th, we didn't realize it at the time, but so much of our day-to-day changed if you travel, right? Just think mm-hmm. through security lines and uh, requests for IDs and, and, you know, inspections of purses, like through every stadium. Think, think about all those things that change. This is going to be no different. We just don't know what those changes exactly are. Exactly what those. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, so, the, you know, the, the most interesting thing I'll say about, you know, the, the government statistics were one thing that you're talking about, but, you know, I don't think, I'm not sure most people think through how much money flows through a system because they don't see it every day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were talking about uh, yesterday. I mean, the reason why these landlords can't pay rent is because you know, a hardware store can't go pay their landlord in shovels mm-hmm. for their rent. And, you know, so much of these retailers and hardware stores, you name it, have their um, asset, their value tied up in their inventory and or accounts receivables that they haven't collected yet. They have to turn that into cash in order to be able to pay uh, their landlord, their bank, et cetera. And, and what's happened when we pause the economy is nothing's getting converted. In, I shouldn't say nothing. A far less significant percentage is getting converted into cash. So now you just have a total stop. Um, and, and what I don't know, what no one's ever seen before, right, outside of some, some wartime scenarios, is when you turn that all back on, what does that do to prices? What does that do to inventory? What does that do to supply chains? No one really knows. Mm-hmm. And there will be some, win, some huge winners and some huge losers, and then there's some huge winners that no one thought about. And just It'll be a fascinating study that they're going to write about for decades, okay. if not centuries to come. Yeah. Well, just think about all the, I mean, I, I've thought about all the habits that are getting formed right now or unformed right now. Yeah. And you know, those will be things that will help influence some of those changes and winners and losers, like you're saying. So let's, let's go a little deeper in the, the topic of, um, of your industry. So as I was mentioning earlier, you know, the last couple startups that I was deeply involved with were in the financial services industry uh, or what I know you lovingly call fintech. I, I don't particularly like the word, but, you know, I, I'm just kidding. I, I know it's not a word you, you adore. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm pretty active. Uh, I'm advising several startups in that world. I'm invested in several other startups in, in the fintech industry. So as someone inside a bank, uh, you know, for, for all the outside folks that I'm involved with, how do you think about disruption and technology uh, from that world? So, so I'll start with that. I, I, I really dislike the term fintech. And I, I, you know, 10 years ago, fintech was an okay term because the, the universe of financial technology was so small. You know, 20 years, you, 20 years ago, you called NCR a financial technology company, sure. right? So. I think you have to break it into what it is, right? You have online lenders, you have online deposit platforms, you have broker dealers, you have payments companies, you have RegTech, and you have neobanks, and there's a handful of other niches, but those are the big ones. And and I think there's going to be a lot of disruption that goes on in that space, you know, and maybe 
the fintechs are going to get disrupted here by some incumbents because of what's going on in the capital markets, which we can talk about after. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the I, I think the online lending space is hugely flawed, um, and I'll go through each one of these these, but I think there's huge flaws in online lending, and and I and I say that because these folks have built huge you know these underwriting models that they they fundamentally believe in and billions and billions and billions of, top, of capital have been put out based on these models. But, you know, Lending Club was started in 06 and the amount of money that went through the 08, 09 financial crisis was so little that the asset class, you could just assume the asset class didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So you have no idea what the loss rates on unsecured online originated paper is going to be in what I would say the cycle that just started. And so, you know, I think there you're, you have to have at least one more credit cycle in these models before you can accurately predict what the loss rates are and then adequately price the, the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and so I think a lot of these guys are going to get blown up. And I think that the capital markets are going to be taking huge hits. And, you know, I, I plan to put my money where my mouth is um, when it all cracks, not with the bank, but with other investment vehicles to buy the paper at cents on the dollar and that because the same way the home equity world blew up. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I think that ends up. Um, and I think it's starting now. The deposit platforms are, I would say the deposit platforms are probably the most interesting to me in the bank because, uh, you know, look in life, it's important to know all of your weak, you know, see your own weaknesses, right? The fintechs and the online deposit acquisition and online lenders, they're really good at customer acquisition, right? Banks are really bad at customer acquisition, right? At yeah, I, I didn't know until I got into this world, just as an example, I didn't know how poorly banks were at things like products per customer. That, that, that the idea of cross-sell, upsell, and other things were just such a foreign idea. Uh, it, seemed, it seemed so... Natural, I think partly, you know, being I, I grew up in a small town, as you know, and there weren't a lot of choices for banks. So if you needed banking products, you sort of just went there and got them. But I think the explosion of of options has really eroded that that sense in, in some of the traditional institutions. So, yeah, it was it was a surprise to me that um, it wasn't a, an intuitive part of, of uh, most banks strategy. Until now, yeah, it, yeah. Well, and, and they talk about it, right? Banks talk, talk mm-hmm. about it all the time. Yes. But what happens is they have antiquated systems and they have uh, uh, bad, uh, poor ways of tying customers together. And so what happens is they have, they, and they don't have data engineers inside of their company. And so when they go to cross sell, they don't know who to cross sell to and they don't know how to serve the ad up and they don't know at what cadence and, and they don't have the data analytics to figure out when someone's going to make a buy decision. So they end up just overflowing customers with product. And, and as a result, there's when you have too many choices, you don't make any. Right? Yeah. As my friend says, the confused mind says no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's, you know, that's the problem that the banks live in. And, you know, and, and you know, I, I'm not popular for saying this, but, you know, the, the, the core processors, the oligopolies of Pfizer, FIS, and Jack Henry are, are a huge part of the problem. And unless you have your own technology team to build your own stack in the back end, you, you know, you're, you're never going to get ahead because you, you basically have a commoditized technology platform with zero customization. So you're just like a drone. 
So anyway, on the deposit platforms, they're really good at customer acquisition and, and they, they build these niche products, right? And, and banks who have been successful, like Liveoak's a good example of it, they build niche products and then they go, they go at the market and they, they cater to the, their customers so that the customer understands that their bank knows the industry there. And we are, you know, we look at niche verticals the same way. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the issue that the deposit platforms are going to have right now, and this is why I think there's a lot of opportunity with, for banks who know what they're doing, is that those companies made their money in two ways. They made their money on the banks paying them interest for the deposits mm-hmm. and interchange the income from car transactions, debit card transactions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the problem that the, you know, that the financial technology space has, the largely online lenders, deposit platforms, and the, and the payments companies, is they still have to run through banks because we have the key, the charter is the key to the kingdom, and we can go to the Federal Reserve. And so... Uh, without that, those companies have to park their money with us. They're generating their revenue off of relationships with us. And when interest rates go to zero, like they did this past month, you know, there's no incentive for us to pay them any interest on the deposits they have with us. And then because fee income becomes so important for banks when they have a tightening net interest margin, the amount the banks will change its share for interchange to the uh, deposit platforms is going to shrink. And so, so I see a, a, a decreasing um, revenue stream for those in that space that were generating revenue. At the same time, you have a tightening VC investment world, and it's going to be this, you know, it's, you're going to see the haves and the have-nots emerge really quickly, I think. Yeah, makes sense. So as you think about that interest rate environment, just as a, you know, this is something that, that just sort of occurs to me. I mean, it, do you look at over the last uh, 20 years and say, okay, this is probably the ideal interest rate environment for all, all people, right? Savers to earn a fair return on saving because obviously right now, uh, and I think this hasn't been talked about enough, that with low interest rates that we've had for a long period of time, we've seen a lot of people not incentivized to save. So they've looked at better alternatives for yield which could have been buying fractional loans on a platform like Lending Club, or could have been going into the stock market looking for dividends. Uh, so, you know, in some cases, not fully understanding the risk that they were undertaking as well. So if you think about that from the customer earning a fair return, the bank earning a fair return, to your point, FinTech innovation, getting a, a fair return. I mean, what, what do you think a core interest rate environment that actually makes sense actually should be so i'm gonna um flip this around on you so i would say that the one of my biggest issues with the federal reserve and the central banks both in the u.s and globally is they've they have this mentality where they can they're trying to create an interest rate right exactly they're they're basically you know historically the federal reserve could, could control the short end of the curve they rise it, they lower it, and the market controlled the long end of the curve. And so when there was fear or we people thought interest rates were going to come down, they bought on the long end of the curve, the 10-year treasury. Mm-hmm. And when they thought that inflation was coming, they would obviously sell the 10-year treasury and the yield would go up, right? So since 2008 and quantitative easing, or I should say 2009 and quantitative easing of Ben Bernanke, 
you know, the world now has this opinion that we, we can control. There's this okay. optimal interest rate. The, yeah. the reality is, is the, in my opinion, the optimal interest rate is driven by fund flow. And so when you have excess savers, right? So we're coming, we're in this, most people don't. But don't sort of cause, it's sort of cause and effect, like which, which drives which, right? I totally 100%. get your point. Totally get your point. That's but I feel like, you know, the Fed has sort of established itself as we're going to be a cause. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I think your point. Yeah. So it's- and we're, we're actually in this very interesting paradigm shift here, which in the, it's not exact, but 2020, 2021 is when the baby boomer population starts to draw net draw down on their mm-hmm. retirement. That may be delayed because of what just happened in the equity markets and people may work for a couple more years. But there's this paradigm shift in the U.S. where you're going to have savers drawing down on their money, which means that that demand for debt, fixed income, in aggregate will decline, which should drive interest rates up. Mm-hmm. But the Federal Reserve obviously is very much in that market controlling that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I, it, the, the fund flows are going to be very interesting over the years to come. And, and the other, you know, the other nuances you have to be looking at is, you know, China's experiencing some major economic contractions mm-hmm. and there's one of their large sources of liquidity, right? If the borrow, if the secondary market borrowing markets are closed, which they are right now, we can mm-hmm. talk about capital markets later. Their source of liquidity is us dollar debt, right? And Saudis, right. Who have oil at in, you know, the fluctuating in the twenties, mm-hmm. uh, they have investments in us dollar nominated assets that need to be sold in order to generate liquidity to cover their budget. That problem exists globally because you have so much debt in the system and now you're having, you know, a massive supply shock. You're having a massive demand shock, which means people need to go into the reserves to keep their countries running. And and that's going to create really interesting issues in debt market. Mm-hmm. So that's my long answer. Yeah, we, we, we probably need to do a panel do a whole nother... just on. Yeah, I get a couple. I had uh Wallace Walrod from the Orange County Business Council on last week, and we had a good. So we'll, we'll get a few people together, and maybe that's a that's a follow up conversation. Yeah, for sure. So, good. so let's go back to Orange County. Um, you know, we talked about these different categories of financial technology innovation, and you brought it down. You know, certainly a, a layer below fintech and just some of these categories. But how do you think about Orange County in the realm of of? And I'll use the word just. Um, for simplicity, but as uh, a center for fintech innovation. So, you know, I see I see three hubs in fintech innovation in the U.S. Uh, from my lens, mm-hmm. and it's it's in New York because it's New York, right? That may change after this because I don't think a lot of people want to live in New York anymore. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Southern California, and then I believe Salt Lake City is going to be a big one mm-hmm. um, that's emerging. But so going to the OC, you know, OC is right in the middle of, of uh, Southern California, sandwiched you know, between LA and, and, and San Diego, and all three have their own innovation hub. And, you know, and I think through Orange County, one of the things that it, it, that's different from it than LA and even San Diego, right? San Diego has this biotech um, focus. LA has a bit of fintech, but they're really an entertainment shop. You know, Orange County has been this hotbed of mortgage for you know, so many years, right? And so, you know, and this is why I don't like the term, you know, fintech, right? You know, what, 
companies in Orange County that are big mortgage players have done, they've fully automated that whole application process. They've created huge amounts of innovation in the mortgage space, but people don't call them fintech. And and so I think the combination of the, the heavy financial services business here, the degree of technology folks we have here, as well as the experience in a, in a deep experience in the mortgage space, which is the most commoditized lending vertical, and as a result, has the most innovation into it, you know, there's a lot of unknown tech talent that sits in the backshop of these companies mm-hmm. that can do can do great things in, in the fintechs, quote unquote fintech space outside of mortgage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you have all the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, well we didn't talk about, you know, you mentioned things like regtech and and neobanks. Do you think of those as places that entrepreneurs here should be thinking about? Yeah, so so um, well, I'll go to the one I didn't mention, which is my fa- favorite is payments. I mean, mm-hmm. the the I think the payment space is is completely overlooked by banks, right? Mm-hmm. When you ask me the question of where where should banks be focusing, sure. I think banks overlook the fintech payment space, but on the on the um, regtech side, I mean, you've got a huge amount of efficiencies that have to get gained in the bank space that, you know, the reg tech that, that the banks can't develop themselves. And so you have this captive audience that needs to drive efficiency yet. There's no, there's very few service providers in the space that can, can do that. And so there's this huge demand of a buyer of a service mm-hmm. that has recurring cash flow that can afford to buy these services. And I don't think there's enough entrance in sort of re- regulatory technology uh, because it's just not a, you know, you know, shiny space, if you will, sure. it has huge upsides that I think a lot of people are missing. And should people think about that from the standpoint of this is what enables the banks to say yes to innovation because it's safer when things like regulatory technology is, is implemented within it? Or how, how do you think about it, particularly for use cases? Is it risk management? compliance, you know, things, things that, that help move forward in a safer or more trusted way? I think that, that what it is, is it's just sheer efficiency, right? So, so banks typically throw people at compliance problems uh, because people who manage compliance divisions grew up in compliance and they trust paper, not technology. And, and, and so what you can, you can sell that product on two, two avenues, right? You need less bodies Mm -hmm. and then, Second is technology doesn't make errors like humans do. And so as long as you get it built and vetted and right up front, you know, if you make a mistake, it's going to be systemic, but you're not going to have the one-off mistakes that you typically have in clients that result in it. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. I I, I like to think of it as managing manually to exception versus the, uh, to to the rule, right? I mean, and and I think that, that is a mindset shift that, a lot of folks really struggle with is, um, you know, oh, I only have to look at one or two percent. Wow, that that seems very uncomfortable. But yeah, that's, that's probably what it what it should be. So, you work with a lot of companies here. You've been in Orange County for a while. As you think about Orange County as a place to do business, to be an entrepreneur, how, how do you think about that? So I'm going to start with the biggest downside. It's in the state of California. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's two, two nuances there. The first big one is is the 
regulatory environment here for an employment and then the litany of things, privacy, all the rest, it's just onerous and changing constantly. Uh, and so as a result, it's very hard to operate. If you're a nimble technology startup, it's easier for us. We have you know staff to deal with that. Um, the second issue is the cost of living in Orange County. It's just expensive. Uh, and, and so getting talent here is difficult, although, you know, once you're here, it's a, you know, wonderful place to, to live. Um, I think the other, the other big flaw, and this is something that you're, you're, you're tackling head on. The other big flaw is Orange County is a big place, right? 3.2 million people spread out across a lot of different communities and, uh, drive times are long because of traffic and all the rest. And, 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 you know, conglomeration economies and where you build sort of tech talent, right? If you look at the Silicon Valley, you know, back in the day, um, you, you want something that's easy to get around. You want those ideas times ideas times ideas equal logarithmic ideas, right? That's how great companies, great communities are built in this world. And, and I think one of the problems with Orange County is it's this huge place where you know, Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley, but it's Mountain View and it's Palo Alto, right? Mm-hmm. And it recently it's become more than that. And so, like, what you're doing in Costa Mesa where, you know, people can live closer to that office, they can, it can be cheaper cost of living, the, the commercial facilities are, are, are lower cost, even though they're still expensive, and everybody's going to the same coffee shops, same restaurants. Creating that conglomeration, I think, is super important, and that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things Orange County's uh, innovation world's got to get better at because right now everything's spread out. Um, and I like, I'll plug my, I live in, in, in Tustin, mm-hmm. um, love that community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, downtown Tustin is totally walkable, right? And very, very much lower cost commercial office space, much lower cost, uh, housing. And, and it's those, that's one of those pockets in our, in our local economy that, you know, really, really could build a, tech community. Sure. And it's very um, central to everything else too. A hundred percent. And SunWest was founded there. So, you know, you, oh, you was, got okay. that plug too. Yeah. 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 yeah that, uh, I think that's a great point. I mean, what, what are the things from your perspective that you think we as a community could do better to foster more entrepreneurship? I mean, one of my big platforms has been that we're not getting enough starts of the kinds of companies that can have the type of, of economic impact that you were describing, like a fast growing, innovative company that was born in Boston or Silicon Valley or, or somewhere else. We have some of those, but we're not getting enough of them, right? We have a, a lot of entrepreneurs that take a more lifestyle uh, approach and, and we need to produce high wage innovation jobs. It's sort of the, for me, you know, the economist in me says, on a supply and demand, you just got to get a much bigger supply of high wage jobs and the people will come. The people that are here mm-hmm. will take them. The people that want them will come here, but that, that we have to create that. So what, you know, from that perspective, I guess, what, what things do you think we can, could do better? Well, one, I, you know, unfortunately, I think the success of Orange County is going to, you know, be determined by how, how the state of California deals with regulation. And if, if, mm-hmm. if they don't reverse course, at some point, I think they'll continue to have businesses leave just because the business environment is so bad here and gets worse by the year, um, if not higher frequency than that. Uh, with that, you know, said, I think, I think it comes down to traction, like anything, right? And and 
you have more, you need more businesses starting here. You're, you're having those trends. Um, you know, look at Andrew that was started, you know, that below here and, and, and is building, building a, you know, defense company in, mm-hmm. in the middle of Irvine. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's starting to happen, but we need more wins. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, holds us back in Orange County, and you know, look, these are a lot of my clients. Is, is we have a big real estate uh, economy here, and real estate sleepy, and it, right. it 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 moves differently than than the the community that you're talking about building. And I think mm-hmm. you know one it does, of the well, it doesn't have the job multiplier, right? It has it has uh, ephemeral jobs on the construction side, and it it doesn't really have a lot of of great jobs on the asset management side. And in many cases, those are, those are getting exported because the capital's gotten exported out of California to other markets. So it's really more of a wealth management play than anything. And, you know, I think part of what, what we're really trying, several of us are trying to appeal to here is say, look, some of that wealth needs to get reinvested into more productive industries for job creation in this area where we can win. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I'd phrase needs to be reinvested because right, we're, it's a, you know, capital is going to allocate to where capital wants to allocate based on return okay. profiles and, and risk risk tolerances. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think what, you know, look, I think I think you're early in what you're doing here, and and I think, you know, but it's it's absolutely necessary, right? And so you know, it's got to start somewhere, sure, and it's got to build the traction, and and I think with continued wins. And more people seeing exactly what you're doing and more capital getting allocated. And that just feeds on itself over and over and over again. You know, that's where you get traction and people start recognizing, hey, I should probably be investing in mm-hmm. things like this as opposed to buying that next building. Or I buy a slightly smaller building and I start investing in some of these, you know, technology firms to to diversify. Yeah. Or or be the butts and seats in my building. Yeah, and and then there's great, and then there's great companies here that are in the technology and the, um, and the uh, and the real estate space. Like like I'll plug Michael Wong at Jenea, who you know has a great company, and you know you you've, and he's servicing the you know the big local economy here in a tech from a technology perspective. And so so more wins like that just feed on themselves, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what I think. You know, it's it's a long road, but. But it's, uh, it would be a great one for a local economy if we can execute on it. That's right. So a couple more things. Um, how do you just, you know, you're, you're always out in front on a lot of things. How do you keep yourself sharp and, and really stay innovative uh, in what many people would look at as a fairly sleepy industry of banking, even though it's not? But how do, how do you stay ahead of things? So uh, never stop learning. Yes, humans were given this wonderful thing called the brain, mm-hmm. and it's like a muscle. If you don't use it, uh, don't keep using it, it will get stale. Um, and so, literally, I consume so much information uh, as much as I can possibly consume in a day, and mm-hmm. it comes from a resource. And um, I think uh, that gives you ideas, and, um, and and you know, candidly, you just need to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Right. If you do that, you will ultimately be successful. It's super easy for me. There you um, go, man. <laughs> um, and then the, the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, you've got to be positive, right? And, and one of the things, and this, this, this goes to the, t- the environment we're in today. 
right? I, I try to wake up every day and make eat the day and today better than yesterday. Mm. Um, and you know, you start a day and you never know where it's going to go and what you're going to have to overcome. But as long as you say, I'm going to make today better than yesterday, you incrementally improve. And, and it's like any business, right? Businesses are built hour by hour, day by day, you know, mm. game of inches, if you will, for an overused NFL phrase. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that incremental growth that, that creates long-term success. And we're no different as people. Yeah. I, I think it's great, great analogy and, and great perspective. So Carson, uh, final lap. One of the things I always like to ask my guests to do is leave uh, a final thought, um, lesson, piece of wisdom that they have for uh, my audience. So you think about entrepreneurs here, uh, people that are trying to help uh, make a difference. They're, they're trying to you know, put themselves out there and be bold. And, and I, I have a feeling we're going to see a tremendous surge in them coming uh, after this, maybe out of necessity, maybe they're, they're inspired through, through this time. But what thoughts do you have for you know, the entrepreneurs uh, in the audience? So uh, I'd say never give up, but always being to be willing to pivot. Um, I have, I have perseverance engraved on the back of uh, watch my grandfather gave me. And, uh, and it's there because it's the core ingredient ingredient in success, um, in my opinion. And I mm. think you have to, you know, you have to drive through everything and, and, you know, I'll just say as a country, we have to persevere through this um, and just keep going. And, and the, the other thing I'll say is so there's, there's two others I'll add. Everything in business and in life is about perspective. Uh, when you, how you choose to look at a situation defines the decisions you make through it. And you have to be very thoughtful about your perspective because if you take the wrong one, it can uh, multiply in the, in the wrong direction. If you take the right one, it multiplies in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one is, uh, and it's my favorite. It's always be curious. Mm. Curiosity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that that determines success in addition to perseverance in most cases. Yeah, those are those are all so good. Thank you so much for joining. I know how busy you are with this uh, craziness around this PPP program, and you know you're, you're always busy anyway. But I really appreciate you joining, sharing your perspective, your your wisdom. It's it's always amazing to me. Um, I, I won't let the audience know, but you're, you're, you know, wise beyond your years. And, you know, thanks for helping all the businesses in this community at a time where they desperately need it, not just your clients, not just your credit clients, but being open for business to really um, anyone here. Uh, I think that means a lot. It shows the character of you and, and of the bank and um, the kind of people, you know, really looking out for Orange County and its future. Um, you know, as I look at it, you're definitely doing your part and then some to uh, accelerate OC. So uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Kerry. And I really appreciate having me on. And uh, I'd add that any of the businesses out there that are, are looking for a PPP loan, come to our website, applications on the homepage, um, and, and we'll take care of you. Awesome. Thanks for joining. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Be well. You've just listened to Accelerate OC. 
Join our live recordings every Tuesday morning at AccelerateOC.com or listen, like, and share anytime from your favorite podcast spot. Let's Accelerate OC together. 